All right, if you could open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7, toward the end of the New Testament. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. If you're back in Matthew, you've not gone far enough. So Hebrews chapter 7, we'll begin in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father and without mother, without genealogy, and having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But made like the Son of God, he remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to who even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he, whose genealogy is not derived from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father Melchizedek, in his father when Melchizedek met him. Today we're going to continue our study in uh, the book of Hebrews. Um, if you haven't been with us over the last few Sundays, we have been going through the book of Hebrews, and we specifically went through this passage. Last time I preached on Sunday evening, we talked about Hebrews chapter 7, and we looked at this fascinating person of Melchizedek. He's fascinating. Who is he? This description of him. It's so interesting. And what is his ultimate relationship to Jesus Christ? We talked about that at some length of who the identity of Melchizedek is and, and how he ultimately points to Christ. But I'm sad to disappoint you, or maybe you're happy. We won't be talking about that today. If I did, you might accuse me of riding my own hobby horse and just keep going over the same stuff, which I have no problem doing. But I will spare you from that. Instead of that, and if you're interested in who Melchizedek is in relation to Jesus Christ, you can go on the website and you can listen to that sermon, or you can just find me after the service and I will talk your ear off about who this great Melchizedek person is. But today we're not going to talk about that. Today we're going to talk about something secondary or something else, and I do admit that it's secondary to the passage, okay? The main point of this passage is actually not the identity of Melchizedek, and it's not what we're going to talk about either. Here's the main point of this passage, that we have a great high priest, and his name is Jesus, and Jesus is superior to the Old Testament. He's superior to everything. He's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to Joshua. He's superior to Aaron. He's superior to the entire Old Testament reality, Because Jesus is no mere man, and he's no angelic being. Jesus is the Son of God. So he's utterly unique, and what he does is what no one else has been able to do. Namely, Jesus bridges the gap between God and man. See, because man has a fundamental problem. And the problem is is that man has sinned against God. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is what? Who knows? The wages of sin is death. And that's not just temporal death. 
but that's eternal death. God created a perfect world, and there was no death. But yet man transgressed, he fell into sin, and he said to Adam and Eve long ago, in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. But that death did not just refer to that physical death, which happened 900 years later for Adam, but also referred to a spiritual death of separation between man and God. And man was no longer in fellowship with his creator. But it gets worse because the Bible reveals that it's appointed for man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. And so we know ultimately that physical death is just one manifestation of the curse of sin. Then we have spiritual death, which is another manifestation, but it gets worse because there's a place called hell, which is eternal death, a place where the worm shall not die and the fire shall not be quenched. And so that's the destiny of all men. All men are on a path straight to hell. And so what we need is a savior to get us out from hell and back into the garden, back into heaven, back into fellowship with God. We need to go from death to life. And that's what this passage is all ultimately about. The way that we go from death to life, the way that we get right with God, the way that we get back into the garden, the way that we don't end up finding out what the worm shall not die and the fire shall not be quenched, what being eternally tormented forever and ever where their smoke goes up and there is no end. The way that we end up not finding out what that ultimately means is to be reconciled with God. And how do we do that? Well, it's right here in our passage. We, we meet this person who is the king of righteousness. We meet the person who is the prince of peace. And we've already talked about him. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the prince of peace, and we are villains of wrath. And that's our lives. And this king of righteousness is Jesus, who will give us his righteousness in replacement of our filth. And the way that we receive that is by receiving what he has done. So one of the most important things for all people to understand, this is a very important truth, I want you to pay attention to this. This is probably the most important truth that you ever hear. There is a God and you're not him. You gotta understand that. There is a God and you're not him. Here's the second most important truth. You're not righteous, that you're filthy, that you're a sinner, that you're vile, and that you deserve death. But we have a king who's also a priest, who's a king of righteousness, a prince of peace, He doesn't want to make war with you, but rather he wants to take your robes of filth and give you robes of righteousness. That is Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is ultimately pointing to. And I hope all of you believe that and receive that. And once you realize that there's a God and you're not him, and you realize that he is righteous and you are filthy, and you realize that it is appointed man wants to die and after this to judgment, and that you're going there, then the only proper response is to say, how do I get right with God? And the way that you get right with God is 2,000 years ago, God sent his son, the king of peace and the prince of righteousness to be born of a virgin. Her name was Mary. And he lived a perfect life, a life that you did not live. And he died the death that you deserve hanging on a cross until he suffocated to death. Then he was taken down, placed in a tomb and rose three days later, conquering sin and death. And now, now that he's risen from the grave, truly risen from bodily death. He now sits at the right hand of God and he's commissioned me and every other Christian out there to go proclaim that message to you that if you repent, that if you call upon the name of the Lord, if you turn away from your sins, if you understand that you're filthy and you understand that God is offering you peace and call upon him, he will hear and he will save. That's the main point. And the reason I front load this now is because I don't want to have any of you ultimately walking away as you get, as you get tired and fall asleep in the middle of the sermon, never hearing that message. I want you to know that that message is true and that message is for you. And I pray that you'll be convicted and you won't walk out of this room without getting right with God. That's what the passage is ultimately about, the Prince of Peace and the King of Righteousness. Nevertheless, the Bible 
talks about more than just that, right? It's not just about that. It talks about that. But then it also talks about other things. What happens after you have confessed and you are made right with God? Why are we still here? Why doesn't God just take us away? Many of you have heard that message and received it long ago. Amen? You've already believed that message. So what now? What does God have for you? What is God telling you? So that's what we're going to look at. So we transition from, if you're a sinner, if you're an unbeliever, this is what you need to hear. And as a believer, you need to hear that too. You need to remind yourself of what God did for you. And we're going to transition from that now. So now I'm going to talk to you primarily as believers, as people who have received that free gift of Jesus Christ. So what does God have for you? What does God want you to do? Well, he wants you to follow his will. He wants you to fulfill his commandments. The ultimate commandment is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. He wants you to do his will on earth until he comes back. That's why he left you here. So let's look at what God's will is for you. Look at verse 4. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4. Now consider how great this man, Melchizedek, was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Now look to verse 5. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. So verse 4 talks about how great this man Melchizedek is because even our father Abraham gave a tenth to him. I gave a tenth of what? A tenth of the spoils. What do we call the giving of a tenth in a religious context? It's a tithe. It's about tithes. Verse 5, you have the sons of Levi. That's the, the royal priesthood of the Jewish nation. See, they, the sons of Levi have received a priesthood, and they have a commandment from who? A commandment from God to receive tithes from the people. And then verse 8, here, mortal men receive tithes. But there, in the case of Melchizedek, of whom it is witnessed that he lives, he receives tithes. Verse 9, even Levi, who receives tithes, paved tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So in this short little section, I hope you heard a word over and over again. What was that word? A tenth, a tithe. Mortal men receive tithes. An immortal Melchizedek receives tithes. Levi paid tithes. So over and over in this passage, it talks about tithes. So this leads to the question, What is a tithe? And how does tithing or a tithe relate to a Christian? Probably that question has many different answers in this very room. What is a tithe? And how does the concept of tithing relate to Christian giving in this room? And that's what we're going to talk about. What is a tithe? And how it relates to Christian giving. Now, before I get into this, let me stop here and say a few things. First, I'm not preaching this sermon because the ministry is in financial need. It's not in financial need. We're doing great, primarily because you guys are great givers. So I appreciate that, and I thank you for that. We're not in financial need. This is not the elders got together and said, all right, Neil's leaving. Let's let Jamie be the fall guy and preach a sermon on giving because we really need more giving. That's not it. Nobody told me to preach this message, and we're not in financial need. Also, the church doesn't want your money, especially if you're an unbeliever. We don't want your money. We want your soul, and we want you to get right with God. But the reason I'm preaching this sermon is because God commanded me to preach the full counsel 
of God's truth. And it's in the passage. I'm stumbling upon Hebrews 7, and I see the word tithes are about 20 times, and I think, maybe I'll just skip it. Maybe not. I'm not going to skip it, because it's in God's word. Acts chapter 20, verse 26 and 27 say, Paul says this, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. All of it. Even the most unpopular parts. In Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, we know that. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Trinity, the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit. But we stop there. Isn't that true, Peter? We stop there. But what does the rest of the passage say? He says we're go, we are to go on and to teach those nations, those disciples, everything that I have commanded you, for lo, I am with you till the end of the age. So part of the Great Commission isn't just to make disciples, but also to teach them everything that Jesus has commanded them, including tithing or including giving. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect and complete, equipped for every good work. So my job as a preacher, as a teacher, and really your job too, by the way, as a Christian, is to believe and preach and to teach the whole counsel of God's word. You don't get to decide, I don't like that portion. I'm not going to talk about that portion. We need to be able to stand for God's truth, whether it's in season or out of season. We need to be able to say fornication, sex before marriage, is sinful. I don't care what culture says. We need to be able to say that hell is hot. It's not cold. There's no AC there. And it's not temporary. It's eternal. Universalism is false. And hell is real. We need to tell people that Jesus is the only way. Not your feelings. Not spiritualism. Not some kind of God. But only Jesus will make you right with God. Does that make sense? We need to hold to the whole counsel of God, what's in season and what's not in season, whether it's popular or not. And the reason I preface this sermon about this is because, let's, let's be honest, we're Americans. And if Americans don't like to talk about a bunch of things, there's one thing Americans definitely don't like to talk about, and it's money. Maybe that's a human thing. I don't know. I've only been from America. But Americans don't like to talk about money. And yet, if you read your Bible, God likes to talk about money a lot. Do you see that? We might not want to talk about that. Hey, that's none of your business. Stay out of my life. But God says, no, it is part of my business, and I'm going to get into your life. And I want to talk about everything, including what God says, and including money and giving. All right, so that's the preface. Let's jump in. Let's look at what God says about giving, and then we'll look at how this relates to tithing. So the first thing that we should see about God's concept of giving, biblical giving, as we find in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Go ahead and turn over to Matthew 6. We're going to go to the words of Jesus a lot. So we're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount a whole lot in this sermon. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. First principle about giving. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. It says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and mammon. So principle number one is this, that serving God is completely in opposition to serving money. You are going to have only one God. You're only going to serve one. You're going to serve God or you're going to serve money. 
Your whole life is going to be consumed about pleasure and what you can buy and what you can sell and what you can receive. Because it's not just money. People say, oh, I'm not in love with money. I'm just in love with stuff. Well, how did you buy the stuff? Don't play that game. Some people love money. Some people love the numbers. Some people like Scrooge. They just love to see hundreds of thousands of dollars in their bank account and that makes them feel wealthy and rich and stable and all that good stuff. And some people are broke. They got no money in the bank, but they got a whole lot of money and stuff. It's all the same. God says that you can either love me and you can either serve me or you can serve money. You can't do both. Now you might say, I'm gonna try. I think I can. But the Bible says you can't. Don't try Don't be in rebellion. You can't serve both. You can either serve God or you can serve money. They're juxtaposed. One is your master and one is your enemy. And you can, even right now, you can check in your own heart how you're liking this sermon so far, right? Because I might be attacking your idol. You might not like the sermon because I'm attacking your idol because you're serving money. God says you can only serve God or you can only serve money. All right, principle number two. Well, actually, sub point. Uh, principle number one, First Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, important note here. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Nevertheless, it says the love of money is the root of all evil. So we should not love money, we should not serve money, but rather we should serve God. So from these two passages, we learn the following. The following. Number one, when God baptized your heart, when you went down into that water of death and you came out, God didn't just baptize your heart, he didn't just baptize your body, he baptized your wallet. Do you see that? You didn't leave, maybe you did, maybe you left your wallet out of the baptistry. You should maybe bring it in. Maybe next time we have a baptistry, next time I baptize someone, I'm going to make sure they grab their wallet, put it in their pocket, and then baptize them. Because God baptizes all of you, including your purse. That's the first principle that we learn. The world might be obsessed with money, and their entire lives might be consumed by sex, by money, by power, but not so with Christians. Our lives should be about serving God and doing his will, loving our neighbor as ourselves, which is the fulfillment of all God's commands. So principle number one, we serve God, not money. Principle one point A is when we baptize when we were baptized, God baptized not just our hearts and our bodies, but also our wallets. All right, principle number two. Christians are called to be generous givers. We have received everything. Isn't that true? We've received everything. We've received forgiveness. We've received redemption. One day we're going to receive glorification, living on a perfect earth with no sin, with no death, with no destruction, and glorified bodies that you can't even conceive of how wonderful they are. You can't even conceive of the wonderful things God has given you. He's given you everything. And so what should we do? We should give him everything. Amen? He gave us everything. You should give him everything. But it's easy to say that. I surrender all when you surrender nothing. Prove it. You say you surrender all, then surrender. And surrender by being a generous giver. God tells us to be a generous giver. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says this. But this I say, he who sows sparingly, will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So each one gives as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, but God loves a cheerful giver. So you shouldn't be sitting there grudging and mad. I can't believe I have to give. God doesn't like that kind of giving. He likes the heart that is generous and says, God, you have given me money. 
You have given me talent. You have given me possessions so I can be a generous person who blesses other people. See, it's interesting. People look at this passage and says, well, it says if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. So I'm just going to sow sparingly because I don't mind reaping sparingly. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is to encourage you not to sow sparingly so that you can reap sparingly, but rather for you to sow bountifully so that you can reap bountifully. He doesn't want you to be a grudging Scrooge of a person, but he rather wants you to be a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. And you who love God should want to do things that God loves. Isn't that true? If you love God, you want to do the things that he loves, which is to be a cheerful giver. So principle number two, Christians are called to be generous givers, not Scrooges, not people holding on, counting every penny. God, I can't give you this. It's mine. No. Principle number three is God calls us to trust him in giving. For some of you, it's not just that you're a Scrooge. It's not just that you just don't want to give anybody anything, but it's that you think, I need this. I can't give it up. I need this. Well, truthfully, you don't need it right now, right? Like, if you gave it up right now, you wouldn't need it right now. But you're saying, I will need it, though. You don't understand. I will. Maybe I'll get into a car accident. Maybe my water heater will break. Maybe, 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 maybe. So I need to have an emergency fund, and I need an emergency fund for the emergency fund, and I need an emergency fund for that emergency fund. Because who knows? Who knows what could happen? Maybe Job will happen to me. And everything will be destroyed all at once. So I need to make sure I really, 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 really ensure that this ship can never sail. This ship can never sink. No, that's wrong. I'm not saying to be financially foolish, to have not even an extra dollar stored away for a rainy day. That's what I'm saying. But I am saying that we are to trust God. And perhaps we have given too much credence to Dave Ramsey and too much or too little credence to Jesus Christ. And we need to think about what he says about trusting him with our finances. Here's what he says. God calls us to trust him in giving. So same passage, 2 Corinthians 9, 8 through 11. And I'm just giving you a sampling. I could give you a hundred verses like this. Maybe that's hyperbole. I give you a bunch. But I'm just going to sample because we've got to move fast here. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 through 11. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance of every good work as it is written, he has dispensed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply your seed that you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving to us to God. That's a long way of saying you can trust God. God is going to provide seed for the sower. God takes care of the birds. Isn't that true? How many of you have seen a starving bird out there? You ever just walk by and like, oh, poor bird, it just starved to death out there. That's not my experience. I see a lot of birds, they're, chir- they're chirping, they seem happy. I don't usually see starving birds because God takes care of even the ravens. He takes care of the squirrels. He takes care of the grasshoppers. He takes care of all of it. He even takes care of the mosquito, which I wish he wouldn't, but he still does. And so how much more will he not take care of you? This is a rhetorical question, but I seriously almost want to know, which one of you have honestly missed a meal because you were too poor to eat? I doubt it. I know I have never missed a single meal in my life that was not voluntary or based on my own stupidity. Never. God has fed me every single day. 
And I think he has fed you every single day. God will provide for us. We can trust him. He will take care of us. All right, principle number four. Principle number three was we can trust him. Principle number four is that God wants us to regularly give. Some of you might be thinking, yeah, I give, you know, occasionally. (laughs) Well, I have given. Occasionally when that plate went around, I scrambled it in my pocket. I found a 20 and threw it in. I give. Is that giving? Is that what God calls us to do? Is on that occasion that we remembered or we were pressured into it or something like that, we threw a 20 in the, is that giving? Is that what God calls us? No. He calls us to regularly give, to systematically give, to give on a consistent basis. We see this in 1 Corinthians 16, 2. This is also where we get that principle of the Lord's day. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 says, on the first day of the week, what's today? It's the first day of the week. I always think it's the last day of the week. But it's the first day of the week. This is the Lord's day. On the first day of the week, that's at church, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there will be no collections when I come. Paul's very clear. On the first day of the week, part of our worship is actually to give. Did you know that? Again, we're Americans. We think it's something bad. We think it's something horrible. How dare the church pass the plate? How dare they do these things? How dare they? This is actually part of our worship. This is what we should be doing. One time I went to a church, and I'm not really in favor of this, but they put an offering plate in the middle, and people would dance and come up and give and dance before the Lord as they were giving. Again, I'm not recommending that for, for multiple reasons, but there was something there. Did you see that? It wasn't something they were ashamed of doing. It's something that they were happy to do, that they wanted to give to God. It was part of worship, and it is part of worship. Systematically, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. Here's another principle. In 1 Timothy 5.17, it says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So this one's a little complex. Let me break it down. There's an elder of the church. There's multiple elders, but there's an elder that specifically labors in preaching the word of God. We call this usually the senior pastor. That person is worthy of a double honor, not just respect, but financial need. And he likens this to an ox who's treading out the grain. Don't muzzle it, because as it's treading, let it eat. It's working out there. Don't just say, oh, this is all my grain. You can't have it. No, let the ox eat while it's working. Makes sense, right? And then he says, he quotes Jesus, by the way, as scripture, which is in the gospel, showing that the Old Testament, the New Testament recognized itself even when it was being written. He says, let the labor is worthy of his wages. So just as nobody would expect you to work for free all the time, right? Could you imagine your job said, you're such a great worker, we decided that you're not, we're not going to pay you anymore because we see that you enjoy this work so much. So we're just not going to pay you anymore. You'd probably say, I'm out of here, right? Because you trade your time and your talent for money. And likewise, the pastor is trading his time and his talent for compensation. So just as the laborer is worthy of his wages, so the pastor is worthy of a double honor, which is to receive financial compensation. So as long as you work, you deserve to be paid, right? As long as you clock in a 40-hour a week, you deserve, you just receive a paycheck at the end of that work. Well, follow the logic. As long as the pastor works, he deserves a double honor. He deserves to be paid. So how long should the pastor work? Should he preach a sermon every six months? Once a year? Is that the only time we need a pastor? On Christmas and Easter? No. The pastor is supposed to work all the time, right? 
He's supposed to be there and available for you all the time, discipling you all the time, praying for you all the time. He's supposed to be clocking in consistently, which means that he should be supported consistently, which means that you must regularly give to support him consistently. Did everybody see that argument? If the pastor needs, the pastor continuously works, and he's supposed to be continuously compensated, and you're supposed to be continuously giving. That's how it works. Okay, principle number four is we're supposed to be continuously giving, not just when we're unfortunately reminded as the plate comes by and we scramble into our wallets trying to find whatever spare change is there. Principle number five, we are to regularly, not just give, but regularly proportionately give. That's why I'm saying we shouldn't just be trying to find how many spare changes in our wallet at a time because what's the likelihood of whatever is in your wallet at the time of reminding to be a proportionate amount of your income? Very unlikely. Most of us don't carry a lot of cash. And if you do, I don't recommend it, but you can do as you please. We're supposed to be proportionate givers. So let's look at that. Same passage, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. See that? Not only is he to systematically give and regularly give, but he's to regularly give as he prospers. This is the principle of proportionate giving. The more you prosper, the more you should give. The less you prosper, the less you should give. It should be proportionate giving. So let's recap these five principles that hopefully nobody disagrees with. Hopefully I've convinced you from the word of God this is not controversial. No Christian really disagrees with this. Principle number one, we are to serve God and not money. When God baptizes our hearts, he baptizes our wallet. Principle number two, we are to be generous givers, not to be stingy, not to be mad about it, but generous. Principle number three, God calls us to trust him in giving. Giving will often hurt. Giving will often not make sense. Doesn't it make so much sense not to give and just save up for your 401k, and then when you're tired, then give? See, that's worldly wise man thinking. Again, I'm not saying you shouldn't save anything for your 401k. I'm saying that that is not what you should be doing. You should be thinking, okay, I need to probably save up some 401k, but I also need to give now. And I'm not going to simply give in the future, but I'm going to give now because I'm going to trust God. And I'm going to believe that the God who takes care of me when I was a baby will take care of me as an old man and take care of me all in between. Amen? That God is not going to abandon me when I'm 90 years old. He's never left me, and he'll never leave me. He'll take care of me before I could take care of myself when I was a baby. He'll take care of me after I can't take care of myself when I'm 90 years old with dementia. Right? He will. God will never leave you. He'll never forsake you from cradle to grave. All right, principle number four. God calls us to regularly give, not inconsistently giving, not when you just were reminded, unfortunately, by someone preaching a sermon like this. God tells you to regularly give. It should be a part of your Christian worship. It should be a part of your Christian life. There should be a regular motion that you do. Okay. Principle number five, we are called to regularly, proportionately give. The more God prospers you, the more you should give. The less God prospers you, the less you should give. If you're Bill Gates, you should give more than me. Right? Does that make sense? Okay, nothing controversial there. So the question is, based on those five principles, I've not mentioned tithing yet, because tithing is not one of those main principles of giving. So where does, what does tithing have to do with this? Well, how does tithing fit into all of this? Well, I'm glad you asked. I really appreciate you asking me that great question. So that's what we're going to talk about next. How does tithing fit in with those five principles? So before we do that, let's define tithing real quick. What is tithing? Tithing is not giving. They're not the same thing. You can give, but that giving could be not a tithe 
or above a tithe. Tithing is not simply giving. Every time you give, you shouldn't say, I tithe. Do you tithe? Yes, I tithe. Well, how much do you give? I don't know. You don't tithe. You see that? Tithing is not just giving. Tithing is specifically giving 10% to God or to the people of God. So tithing is not just simply Christian giving, and tithing is not just giving. If you just decide to give to some random charity that has nothing to do with God at all, that's great giving, or it might be great giving, but that's not tithing. Tithing is specifically 10% of whatever God gives you of the increase, specifically to God or the purposes of God. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, isn't it true in the Old Testament that a tithe or the Jewish tithe on the, under the law was actually 23%? Has anybody heard that before? Under the law, it wasn't 10%, but it was actually 23%. Nobody heard that? Well, it's out there. It's not true. It's not true that under the law, tithing was 23%. What is true is under the law, there were three tithes. The first tithe was to support the Levite. You'd give him 10%. That's just like paying the pastor. Okay? The second tithe was a festival tithe. Every year you were to go up to Jerusalem and you were to take a tithe. Oftentimes you would sell the stuff, get money, and then throw a big party for yourself before God. It's like a religious vacation. It was great. I mean, God literally gave you, told you, I want you to save 10% to throw a great party for yourself and celebrate before me. That was a tithe. And then there was a, another tithe that happened every three years where you would, after three years, you would give a tithe and you would, sell, you would make this big party for those who, were, those who were poor in society, essentially. Those who were fatherless, those who were widows, those who were strangers, and you throw this giant party for them. It, it, that, that's, those are the three tithes. So it's not true that they gave 23%. It's true that they had three different tithes. Now, of those three tithes, we, uh, two of them relate to the Jewish festivals, going up and worshiping before God physically, and the theocracy. This is a charity system to help the poor. This is the original welfare system, essentially. And so since we're not part of the theocracy, obviously we don't have to do this welfare system tithe. And since we're not going up to Jerusalem, we don't have to do this party tithe. Now, I will tell you, as I studied this, I am thinking about just considering maybe celebrating myself with this party tithe. Sounds like a good idea, but it's not required by God's law. Okay, just something to think about. 10%, this is a great party, sounds like a great idea to me. But of these tithes, only one of them seems to have any analog into the New Testament, which is the idea of giving 10% to support the Levite, the priesthood, which has an analog to the idea of giving a tithe to support the pastor. So that's tithing under the law. But did you know that tithing does not begin in the law? Tithing does not begin simply in the Mosaic law. Tithing predates that. In fact, you saw that in our passage. So go back to Hebrews 7, or just mentally go back to Hebrews 7, and you see that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Now, Abraham is way before the law. Abraham is 400-something years before the law of Moses. So tithing actually predates the law of Moses. And there's another figure who tithed before the law of Moses, namely Jacob. You remember when Jacob sees the ladder going up to heaven, and he gets right with God, and he says to God that if you bring me back here, whatever you give me of the increase, I will give you 10%. I will tithe to you anything that you prosper me if you bring me back to the land of Canaan. So these are the two references of tithing before the Mosaic law. Now here's the million-dollar question. Where did Abraham and Jacob ever get this idea to tithe? Where did this idea come from in the first place? Now, some, I would call them more secular scholars, will point out that all throughout the ancient world, there's this principle of tithing. 
You see that. It's a very common reality in ancient, the ancient world that you were to give God or their gods a tithe of your income. So what many secular people argue is that Abraham was just influenced by the secular culture. So since the secular people worship their gods by giving a tithe, then Abraham said, well, maybe that's appropriate for me to worship God by giving their tithe. Do you see how it works? Abraham follows the pagan practice. I think this is secular, unbiblical thinking. I think rather what happened is that God had prior revealed the tithe and non-written revelation to God's people, and that's what Abraham is following. And then the nations who also received that corrupted that system, and that's why they carried on the tithe in their reality. This is kind of like the idea of a seven-day week. Why is it that all the nations around the world, for the most part, have a seven-day week? Did the Christians or the Jews get it from them? No, they got it from us. That we came first and then the people followed after. So I'm arguing that where Abraham got this principle of a tithe, this principle of proportionate giving to God, which was 10% in his day, is from unwritten revelation given to him. Now that seems strange to you or mystical. Think about this. You have Genesis 1 and 2. You have creation. Genesis 3, the fall. Genesis 4, you have Cain and Abel. And what are they doing? Remember what they're doing before the conflict happens? Sacrifices. Where did they get that? Where did God tell Abel and Cain to offer sacrifices? Search the scriptures. You won't find it. Yet we obviously know that he did. That's why they're doing that. And you can, you can see all of this. You see, here's a trick question. How many animals did Noah take on the ark? The Sunday school answer is two. Is that the full answer? Peter, is that the full answer? No. He took two And of the clean animals, he took seven because he sacrificed them afterwards, right? Where did he get the concept of clean and unclean animals, Noah, way prior to the law? Unrevealed, but obviously told to him revelation. You see the same thing described of Abraham. He's described as someone who was following God's commandments given to him. Where did God reveal these commandments? They're not written. Sodom and Gomorrah. They're full of homosexuality and sin. Where did God say that they weren't supposed to do that? It was prior revelation. You see the, the Leverett Law and with the case of Judah. Where did he get that? I could go on and on. You see evidences in the book of Genesis of this unwritten uh, revelation of God. And I'm saying the same thing happens with, in the case of Abraham and the case of Jacob, that we have this unwritten revelation given to the patriarchs of what original proportionate giving is. So I know I said a lot there. Let's think about this. When God, from Adam to the patriarchs, all the way up to Moses, revealed to his people what proportionate giving was, what did he reveal? Because they were supposed to give back then. It wasn't like the people between Adam and Moses weren't supposed to give. They were supposed to give too. This is part of true Christian worship. So what what is God's instruction for them to give proportionately? It was a tithe. That's what God revealed. Then when we get to the law, he codifies this tithing principle and tells the people of God that their proportionate giving to support the Levites is a tithe. That's what the Bible reveals. Now, we do have Jesus commenting on the tithe. And we see this in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus comments on the practice of the scribes and the Pharisees tithing. He says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay a tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. 
These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So here Jesus is condemning the Pharisees. He often did that because they were hypocrites. And he says that you guys would tithe even the smallest herbs in your herb garden. That's how serious they were. They said, I'm going to tithe everything. If I get a little cilantro, I'm tithing the cilantro. I'm going to count out one cilantro leaf, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Boom. That one's for God. Is that pretty extreme? Do you guys do that? I don't. I just don't do it. That's pretty extreme. I mean, this is pretty scrupulous tithing. And we might think that Jesus would say to them, why are you doing that? That is really quite foolish. That's really quite superstitious of you. Rather, you should just give as your heart tells you to, or whatever, something like that. But that's not what Jesus does. He says that these things you should have done, but guess what? You neglected some much more weightier matters than a piece of cilantro. And what is that? Justice, mercy, faith. Those are the weightier matters. You should have embraced that. You should have seen that that's the thing you should be really focused on, not the cilantro leaves. But he also says, you should have done the cilantro leaves too. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. So Jesus doesn't actually tell them that this is superstitious and and just overly scrupulous. He says that this is actually right and that this is actually appropriate. So that's what we see about that. Now I want to show you one other passage about tithing in the Old Testament. Turn over to Malachi 3. Keep your finger in Matthew. We're going to be back there. Uh, Go to Malachi chapter 3. This is how serious God found tithing in the Old Testament. This was not some minor matter that really did not matter. This is not like having garments of different fabrics. That is a command of God, but it's a lesser command of God, and God never sends the prophets to condemn people about wearing fabrics of multi, uh, multi-cloth. But he does condemn them very starkly about tithing. So Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But I say, in what have we robbed you? In tithes and in offerings. You are cursed with a curse. You have robbed me, even the whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground. Nor shall the vine fail to bear the fruit of your field, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful lamb, says the Lord of hosts. Now notice how similar this instruction about giving is to the New Testament. You have all of the same basic concepts. Notice God says, try me, test me, trust me. We already saw that that's the same thing God tells us in the New Testament. Try me, test me, trust me. There's also this promise that if you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. He says, you're cursed because you robbed me. But if you were to trust me, I'd pour out the heavens to bless you. That's the exact same thing we see in in Corinthians where God says that he will bless you if you simply trust him. So it's all there. Now, which tithe is God talking about? Is he talking about the festival tithe? About going to Jerusalem and partying? No. He's not talking about the charity tithe either. He didn't say anything about there's a bunch of poor people that are not being fed. The tithe he's talking about, we see in verse 10, bring the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. The tithe that God is specifically very irritated about, that people have neglected, is the tithe to support 
the Levitical priest. This is the very tithe that shows up before the law, the tithe to support God and his ministers. And to refuse to do this, God says, with absolute clarity, you have robbed me. Now, to me, that's very serious. The last thing I want is for God to one day say to me, you have robbed me. Now, moving into the New Testament, we will notice that the Levitical system is done away with. There are no more Levitical priests. And so some of us might immediately say, God got rid of the Levitical priest, and now we are all priests of God, right? There used to be an individual priest, but now we're all priests of God. And you know what? That is somewhat true. Jesus is the great high priest. We are now unified with Christ, and therefore through union with Christ that we are all priests. But it's also true that in the Old Testament, there was Levitical priest, and he also said about the whole nation, you are a nation of priests. So this idea that the entire nation were priests before God is actually an Old Testament concept. It has greater fulfillment in the New Testament, but it's not a strictly New Testament concept. And so I would argue that the analog between the Levitical priesthood is not directly to every Christian, but it's actually more closely related to the minister of the New Testament, namely the pastor. When God abolished the Levitical priesthood as a priest, teacher, counselor, guider, all that stuff, he didn't just replace it with everybody, every random Joe out there, right? But rather he created a new institution of elders. So the role that the priest used to function as the teacher of the people of God have been abolished and now replaced with a new teacher of God's people, namely the elder. And so I would say that the elder is that analog, and he also, just like the Levitical priest, expected the Levitical priest to be supported, he also expects the elder to be supported just like the Levitical priest. Now, that's the data. That's all we have on tithing. I've given you all the data from pre-law to law to Jesus' statements to New Testament reality of elders. That's the data. So here's the question. What does your heart do with that data? What is your heart as you think about the Bible and the grand story and the giving in the Old Testament, the giving in the New Testament, and you see Jesus' statements and all of that? What does your heart say? Now, your heart can say many different things, but here's some guesses of maybe what various hearts might say. Some hearts might say this. Well, it doesn't technically say that I must tithe. You didn't show me a New Testament passage that technically says I must tithe. And you know what? You are right. I didn't show you a New Testament that says that you must tithe. And so some of you might say, well, it doesn't technically say I must tithe, therefore I'm free to tithe or not to tithe, and I'm free to define how sacrificial, continuous, proportionate giving looks like to me. And whether that is 2% or 2.5% of my income or 10% is up to me and not up to you. You might be saying that. And I would say to you, perhaps, perhaps you are right. But I will tell you this, beloved, that, does not, that is not what my spirit says with this data. My spirit does not say that it's all up to me and I get to decide and it doesn't really matter. 2.5, who's to say? Whether that's proportionate giving or 10%, who's to say? You're just, every man does what's right in his own heart. Here's what my heart tells me. My spirit says this, Lord, I don't want to rob you. Lord, you told me to give continuously, regularly, sacrificially, and proportionately to you. I showed you that from the New Testament. That's what you told me. But I also know that if I look at my heart, you know what I see? I see a sinful man. I see a man who secretly loves money. I see a heart that is deceitful and that doesn't want to give. Maybe you see that in your heart. I certainly see it in mine. 
an evil heart that tries to tell me, be greedy and give as little as possible. So what I then cry out in my own heart is, God, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. God, give me some instruction. Help me to know, is 2.5% really proportionate giving or not? How do I know? And when I ask that question to God and ask for help, then I look through the scriptures and say, God, did you ever teach your people anything about what proportionate giving looks like? And when I ask that question, I then see the tithe and say, look, I see some instruction. I see some training wheels of righteousness. I see some principle that may give me some basic idea of what proportionate giving might look like. And that's what I see the tithe as. I see the tithe as a wonderful answer to my prayer. It is going from darkness to light, from guessing to information, from deceptive feelings to actual instruction. I don't find the tithe as some yoke, but rather the tithe as a wonderful filling out of God's entire Bible about instruction about what proportional giving looks like. And I just present that to you. You have to ask yourself. Ultimately, you have to decide. What does God-honoring, non-God-robbing, trusting God, generous, proportionate giving look like to you? And you have to search the scriptures and find out. You don't ultimately want God to say, you have robbed me. At the same time, you don't want to add a yoke that God never gave you. You have to search the scriptures and decide for yourself. Now, there's, there's another possible reaction. Here's the other reaction. I've, I've heard this before. Some of you might be giving way more than 10%. And you might actually have the opposite reaction. And you might be thinking that tithing is too low of a bar. And to say that tithing is proportionate giving is actually restricting the people of God of their full responsibilities. And to that, I would say tithing is just a basic principle that should be giving you some instruction of what proportionate giving looks like. If you are Bill Gates, you probably shouldn't tithe. Does that make sense? If you have so much money that the tithing is no longer proportionate to you, no longer generous, no longer sacrificial, then obviously the tithe is not where you should limit yourself to. And likewise, some of you honestly might be so poor that you just cannot tithe. You go to your house right now, it's 55 degrees, you eat rice and beans. You are literally poor. Under those circumstances, perhaps you shouldn't tithe, right? Again, you have to ultimately work with the spirit, think about these things, and try to wrestle with it. But I'm simply pointing to you and saying, there is some instruction here, and there is this data, and you should wrestle with this data and simply think about it. Now, as I close here, I will say that my last argument for why I think that we should really consider this tithe and not merely just bypass it altogether and say this is just something of the law that we should simply disregard. And here's the argument. That when Christ came, he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but what? I came to fulfill the law. So remember I told you I wanted you to stay in Matthew? Well, here's why. Go to Matthew chapter 5. That's where Jesus says that. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And he said this, that whoever tries to disregard the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of God. Whoever teaches these commandments will be called greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, I think that this idea of Jesus fulfilling the law has a whole bunch of different analogs, a whole bunch of different fulfillments. And ultimately, Christ fulfills the law by being our righteousness, by doing the law and then giving righteousness to us as a free gift. So that's the ultimate fulfillment. But Jesus also fulfills the law in another way. He tells us what the law really means, what the law really pointed to. And you can see this. Let's look at this real quick. Chapter 5, verse 21. Look what it says. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder 
But I say to you, whoever hates his brother, whoever is angry with his brother without cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to your brother, you are a fool, shall be in danger of the council and be in danger of hellfire. See what Jesus does? He says people in the Old Testament just thought you can't kill anybody. But Jesus says to hate your brother, to harm your brother, to talk about your brother, to slander your brother. That's all a violation of the law to murder. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28. You have heard that said of old, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not sleep with someone else's wife. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see what Jesus is doing? It's not just sleeping around physically, but it's any form of lust is evil. Do not lust. He shows you the spirit of the law, which is so much greater than the letter of the law. He talks about divorce. You've heard that it was said, when you divorce, give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, commits adultery and makes her commit adultery. He brings up the law. Are you seeing the pattern? You've heard it said, you shall not make an oath. But I say to you, don't swear at all. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus always shows you what the trueness of the law is, which is so much greater than the letter of the law. He never downgrades the law, but he shows you always how much greater fulfillment it is. So here's my question I want to leave you with. Did Christ come to teach you about the law and to break you free of the law and give you the fullness of the Spirit so you could give less than his Old Testament saints and his pre-Mosaic law saints did in the Old Testament? Is that what Christ did? Is that, does that seem to be the pattern that those poor people in the Old Testament had to get 10%, but God has freed me, hallelujah, so I can give 2.5% whenever I feel like it? Does that sit with you? It certainly does not sit with me. Final statement, and we're out of here. Some of you might be thinking, I simply just can't give. I want to give. You've convinced me that 10% is a goal that I want to obtain to, but right now, I just simply don't have it. And I would say, pray to God, work with him, and do what you can. But I do want to leave you with this thought, that if you do actually want to give 10%, but you honestly just can't give it yet, and that's a goal that you want to aspire to, I want to point you to Haggai chapter 1, verse 6. And I just want you to think about this. Haggai chapter 1, verse 6 says, you have sown much and you bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but you are not warm. He who earns wages, earns wages, but he puts it in a bag with holes in it. See the concept? You just don't have enough. You, you, you get money, but you don't have enough to really supply your needs. You, you got this clothes, but you're still cold. Right? You get some food, but it's really not good. You're, nev- you're never satisfied. Okay? Here's what the Lord says in Haggai 1 verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it in your home, it blew away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because my house that is in ruins, while every one of you take care of your own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought of the land, and the mountains, and the grain, and the new wine, and the oil, and whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Here's the point of that passage. Why is it that they just don't have enough? Because God cursed them. Because God chastised them. Because they were stingy. Is it possible that the reason you do not have enough, 
to tithe is because you haven't tithed. Just think about it. Prayerfully consider those realities. Final principle, do not lay it for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But rather, lay up your treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. That's what this sermon is about. It's not about the church getting more money. It's about you putting your treasure in a better bank account. I ultimately want to see you prosper and you grow in godliness and you see the blessing of giving. Because ultimately, you're withholding your own blessing. The more treasure you have on earth, the more your heart will be down here. Isn't that true? Right? Isn't it true? The more you have down here, just think about it. The more you take your money and put it in the stock market, the more you'll watch that stock market, and the more you'll freak out when that stock market goes down. Isn't that true? If you've got no money in the stock market, you really don't care if it went up or down. But if you've got all your treasure there, you're going to care, and you're going to care a lot, and you're going to watch that like a hawk. But the more money and the more treasure you have in heaven, the more your heart will be there. And that's what this is all about. It's about putting more of your treasure from earth to heaven and considering all that God has said. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this gracious gift. We thank you that we can't buy it. We thank you that giving is not about buying your favor because you have given it all in Christ. We thank you for the whole Bible, that you give us instruction, that you give us information, that we're not just shooting in the dark. But if we look through all your scriptures, you tell us, you help us, you guide us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move us so that we can all ultimately fulfill these commands to be proportionate, sacrificial, trusting, regular givers. And we can prove you true, that we can all tell stories about how God always has provided and always taken care of us. And we have never gone wanting because we trust in you. We praise these things in Jesus' name. Amen.